Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. What happens when a guilty person is acquitted of a crime? Or worse, when an innocent person is convicted of a crime? This injustice can sometimes be prevented with the help of jury consultants, people who assist lawyers in picking juries in all types of trials, not just criminal trials. Paul Lisnick, the author of The Hidden Jury and Other Tactics Lawyers Use to Win, is an attorney, jury consultant, and journalist. One of the many well-known trials in which he assisted was the O.J. Simpson trial in Los Angeles. In his book, The Hidden Jury, he debunks the myth that juries are fair and impartial, that if someone commits a crime, they get convicted, that only guilty people are ultimately put to death, and that only the wealthy or famous can afford a trial consultant. I spoke with Paul Lisnick in March of 2005 and began our conversation by asking him to describe his interpretation of the jury system. Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, Barry, there's a, there's a sense to which people think of our uh, jurors as being fair and impartial. And, uh, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, my book, The Hidden Jury, I actually really wanted to call it Fair and Impartial, an American Myth. That was a title that the uh, publisher thought was too long. But uh, to me, it, it says it all, because the truth is there is no such thing as a fair and impartial juror. Even when we're in court and the lawyers ask the prospective jurors, can you be fair and impartial? And they say yes. And they do. And they mean it. They, 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 most of them mean to say so truthfully, although in, in high-profile cases like Michael Jackson's uh, case, we're not sure if people are telling the truth, and that's, that's part of the role of the jury consultant as well, to try and read through that. But what, it, what, what the truth really is, Barry, is that people can be fair and impartial so long as the decision they have to make falls within their worldview, their their underlying attitudes and values, and that's what that really means. So everybody, you know, I work in a lot of the priest abuse cases that go on around the country, and so you know, if you put the put those the church and and those priests uh, on trial in front of a group of Southern Baptists, you know what? They're going to be fair and impartial too, and there ain't no way that the church and the priests are going to get away with with anything except a guilty verdict. You see. So that takes us to examining the jury pool and setting up a questionnaire to the jurors that go in uh, below the water level into the body of the iceberg. Well, that's right. And, you, you know, because in many places where jury consultants are not used, um, all jurors, and if your listeners have done jury service or even gotten a questionnaire at home, they, they know they get this sort of very surface-level questionnaire. In some of these uh, other bigger cases that we hear about and that we follow, uh, and the ones I write about in The Hidden Jury, there's a much more grandiose questionnaire that gets drafted by folks like me, uh, the jury consultants. And, I mean, in the O.J. Simpson case, for example, that questionnaire was 68 pages long. They had them in 
in the Kevorkian case and, and uh, almost any big case, Scott Peterson and, of course, Michael Jackson. And so this is the consultant's effort, as you say, to get below the surface to find out what's really making people tick. Sometimes judges don't like those surveys because they think, you know, we don't want to play sociological games here, when the reality of it is is that it actually saves them time because it's giving the lawyers a lot of information about those jurors uh, from which they can make an evaluation, and then the selection is actually an easier process. So let's talk about how those questionnaires are put together, the focus groups, the mock trials, etc., well, and of course, those are all various different projects that consultants do. The questionnaires um, are put together by consultants who basically talk to the lawyers and say, look, what are you concerned about in this case? What are the issues here? Um, and now, it, one very famous case where that questionnaire made a huge difference was the Scott Peterson case, because in that case, uh, Peterson's lawyer said, you know, we're not... We don't even believe Scott can get a fair trial in his hometown, um, which of course is where he should be tried because that's where this crime happened. And uh, the juror question, the community, sorry, a community attitude survey was done. Not a juror questionnaire, but a community attitude survey was done where the consultants go out into the community and ask a series of questions, uh, and we learned there that, in fact, Scott could not get a fair trial, and the judge moved his case. The community attitude survey is a tool where we sort of go into the community and find out what's making people tick. Different from the juror questionnaire, where we're, those are people who are actually coming up into trial. How do you select the people who you question in that community attitude survey? Just random people on the street, or is it uh, a more scientifically established telephone survey? Well, it is a scientific uh, telephone survey, but still random. Um, you have to call people randomly because if you don't, I mean, the, the whole notion of any research is that it's got to be random because if, you, if you're systematically selecting a certain group of people or, or certain kinds of things, then, well, then that feeds your results. Random sampling generally means, you know what, this could be anybody who, called, uh, who, who was called, and therefore this should fairly represent what's happening within this community. So it's a random sample. Do you find that using the system of a telephone survey makes it less than random because you're only talking to people, one, on the telephone, and two, with people who have telephones? Well, you know, that's interesting. And, of course, not only when you say telephones and those people that have cell phones, the question is, are we reaching them? And that's one of the issues that, you know, the same kind of tool gets used in political research and market research. So that's, it's an excellent question in almost any kind of world of research these days when you say, wait a minute, what about the folks with cell phones we're not reaching? What about, now, the folks without phones at all, I'm not quite sure what planet they're on, but, but I know there, is, there are little towns here and there where that may happen. Um, but generally speaking, you know, you are, I mean, by the way, when you're talking to a community, you might only talk to three or four hundred people, that, that generally is enough to get a statistically significant result uh, in terms of, of what you're studying, and, and that's usually good enough. And they say those statistically significant results are within three to four percent error ratio. Right, and of course, for, for a result to be statistically significant, they have to be within a 5% ratio. They have to be what's often referred to as less than 0.05. And in fact, uh, your listeners might notice whenever they're lo reading the newspaper and reading a, oh, a, a poll or an opinion poll, if they look closely at the bottom of, of where those results are reported in a little chart or graph, it will often always say, um, the margin of error and, and the extent to which the results are significant. And when it says less than 0.05, what it means is these results count. They matter. They're statistically significant. And that's the kind of work jury consultants do in these cases. So tell us about the kinds of questions that you would ask. 
Well, that so depends, Barry, on the kind of case. Um, and, of course, that's a good thing because if, if it was just a, a general kind of thing, then, then you would, you know, almost any question would work in any case. They have to be tailored to the case. In the most recent case going on now, the Michael Jackson case, which I think is fascinating, by the way, because the juror questionnaire there, and now we're talking about the juror questionnaire, um, I guarantee you that the consultant submitted questionnaires to the judge that were probably 50 or 60 pages long. In the end, he permitted a questionnaire that was seven and a third pages long, about 41 short answer questions, which to me was this judge's way of saying, we're not letting you folks play games. I'm going to control this proceeding. But in that case, a couple of the questions were very telling. For example? Yeah, for, for example, they asked the jurors, um, have you ever been the victim of abuse? Or have you ever been accused of abusing somebody? Oh, critical questions, because that, of course, that's the kind of conduct that, is, that we're concerned about in Jackson. But a really special question, Barry, they asked in that, in that questionnaire, which was fascinating to me. Towards the end, they said, do you have any information or knowledge about the 1993 allegations against Michael Jackson? Now, the reason that's so fascinating to me is because, of course, many of the jurors, potential jurors at that time, uh, responded, no, I don't know anything about it. Well, guess what? Now they did, because there it was being put in the juror questionnaire. And doesn't that taint the pool itself? It could. One of the reasons for that was because it was unclear at the time of the effect. I think it's still unclear as to, as we speak, as to whether the judge is going to allow any information in regarding those 1993 allegations. And so it, I think that there the defense lawyers may have said, look, if he does allow it in, we just need to know what we're dealing with. And if he doesn't allow it in, well, hopefully most people who say they don't know about it will kind of let that float out of their mind and not worry about it. We still don't know whether that information is actually going to come in or not. So that becomes a tactical question or a tactical uh, activity on the part of the lawyers in the course of preparing for the trial. Oh, in terms of the kind of question, oh, absolutely. Now, you know, it, although the reason that was so interesting is that that generally is an, it, it, that's an unusual situation. That is to say, more often than not, lawyers know what they're in for and what's about to come in. That's why I, I sort of make a mention of that question, because it is, it's a little unusual for um, you know, the lawyers at that point to be dealing with the juror questionnaire and really not know whether or not certain information is going to be permitted in uh, over time. So they have to make a strategic call. But there's a general, one of the things I write about in The Hidden Jury, I say, look, one of the uh, pieces of advice I give to my clients, and my clients are lawyers, my clients are not the actual defendants or plaintiffs, because that, they have their own lawyer. I'm an arm of the lawyer as well, although I am a lawyer. But um, one of the suggestions and, and, uh, uh, we give them is to say, look, don't, you know, don't hide anything. You've got to put it on the table. Um, that's a piece of advice that I learned years ago from Kathy Bennett. She was a very famous jury consultant. She passed away several years ago. But she was the consultant in the DeLorean case and the William Kennedy Smith case. And, you know, if you're going to represent William Kennedy Smith, for example, who people may remember was charged with rape years ago, um, it doesn't make any sense to hide the image of the Kennedys as partiers, the Kennedys, Kennedys as womanizers, all of that kind of thing. The theory is put it on the table and find out what people know. Paul Lisnick, author of The Hidden Jury, tell us about your thoughts on why there are not jury consultants in most trials, in most towns, in most cases throughout the country. Well, you know, that's an interesting question, Barry. When you say that there aren't consultants in most, that's probably true. 
But there are probably consultants in far more many cases than people recognize. It's just that we don't read about or follow on TV and the newspapers every case that's going on. I mean, there are hundreds of consultants around the country, and of course, they all have very decent caseloads. And so, by definition, there are criminal and civil cases all over the place that, that consultants are working in. But having said that, one of the reasons that, that uh, consultants might not be in a case, there's sort of an image, I think wrongly so, but there's an image that only the rich and famous can afford uh, a jury consultant. You know, the reality is, Barry, that this field got started many years ago, back in the early 60s at least, if not before, and it got started because people uh, who, were, who were wanting to be jury consultants actually were assisting uh, often criminal defendants who, didn't, who had the resources of the state coming against them, and they had nothing to help them out. It was the effort of jury consultants who wanted to actually work for free uh, or for very low fees to help those who otherwise couldn't help themselves. Because there was a perception that the playing field was not level. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, and you know, most people think about, well, the rich and famous have the resources and the state doesn't. The truth is, the state, in the criminal case, the state has tremendous resources. Um, I mean, let's face it, it's, it's, you know, they can do whatever they want and, and they'll find the money to, to do whatever uh, uh, research and things they, they need to do. Um, but again, it's the famous cases where we often hear about the jury consultant's work because, uh, well, I guess because of our 24-hour news cycle, you know, it, it's CNN and all the, all the channels, and I do commentary for, for some of those myself, so I suppose I'm guilty of it. But, you know, we put on the front burner of, uh, of people's consciousness what otherwise might not be there. Well, if we were to take a number of, of observations as perhaps givens, uh, that a person is not likely to be charged with a crime or sued in a situation unless there's at least some factual background or some factual basis uh, for uh, the, the case to be taken to court, particularly in a criminal case. And if we're talking about uh, leveling the playing field, do jury consultants actually make the playing field more level? Or do they try and set it up so that the defendant is, uh, gets off, as is the common uh, conversation in the O.J. Simpson matter? You know, it's a common question to be asked. Um, in, in fact, I guess I'm, I'm going to go a little bit beyond your question and, and then come back. It's a common question for people to be asked, you know, how do you work in a case when you represent a guilty person? How do you do that? Uh, O.J. Simpson being sort of a classic example. And, and the answer is, you know, it's funny that people like to ask that question. They do like to ask the question, how do, you rep- how do you sleep at night when you represent a guilty person? But I often sort of respond by saying, why do you not ask the question, how do people sleep at night when a, an innocent person that they've represented has been found guilty? Isn't that the more difficult question and the more difficult problem in our legal system? And I raise that question in the hidden jury and, and, and explain to people when people sort of say, how, why is it that it, it's okay if a guilty person walks free sometimes? The answer is because we have to make the system work. The system makes mistakes. There's no question about that. Uh, guilty people go free, but worse, innocent people are often convicted wrongly. And, and so there are problems in the system. Uh, I still stand by the, the, the position that it is still one of the best systems in the world, even with its, its problems and the errors. Um, and it's one that at least that most people are willing to, to put an effort in to try and fix and make work. It's, I guess, why I get bothered sometimes when the government tries to step in the way of the jury system. There's great efforts. I don't mean to get political on this, but, you know, great efforts now to, to, uh, to, to have some changes so that jury in medical malpractice cases, different cases, so that jurors have, have less influence and, and, uh, and, you know, and, and judges can make different kinds of decisions. You know, my view is the jury system may make mistakes, but let jurors do their job. 
and, and let the internal workings of the system, uh, judges on appeal, whatever, there's so many different ways of fixing cases that go wrong when they do. Uh, that we ought to let the jurors do their job. It seems to me that if the jurors do their job and it's done, then we have 12 people who have gotten together, they've heard the story, however it's presented, and they make a decision. And if we say that there would be a limit on a medical malpractice case or any other form of limit, are we not saying that the jurors are less than competent and don't really know what's going on? Well, you know, the theory is, under that theory, you'd say, hey, you know what, if our case is uh, involving some, some DNA issues, what we really do, what we really ought to do is, let's get a group of jurors who are scientists and who understand DNA. In other words, wouldn't professional jurors do a better job? That, that's where that argument goes. And the problem is that professional jurors actually would be biased in their own experience in education, in terms of saying, hey, look, I understand this stuff, and I know what ought to happen here. The whole idea of using lay people is, is creating the challenge for lawyers to say, look, folks, as a lawyer, I'm going to, to teach you whatever it is you need to know to get through this case and understand it. And really what you need to do is listen to the people who have to testify here, and we're going to let you make the decision. It's not an easy job, but jurors take that job very seriously. You know, a lot of people always like to get out of jury service. Oprah Winfrey, I live in Chicago, and Oprah Winfrey, of course, famously was on a jury last year. She tried to get out of it, too. But when she couldn't, and she served on the jury, you know, in the end, as most jurors end up saying, it's one of the most rewarding experiences of their life. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Paul M. Lisnick, the author of The Hidden Jury and Other Secret Tactics Lawyers Use to Win. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Paul, the concept of professional jurors seems to me something like the concept of professional prosecutors. The prosecutors uh, that I've met uh, are sure that the people who they charge as criminal defendants are guilty of the charges. They believe it. And, and I think that you would have the same uh, eventual situation of a quickly formed judgment with the professional juror, which is what I believe you just said. And therefore, I'm asking, isn't it a disparagement to the lay jurors to say they cannot make this certain judgment? And I think you're discussing that disparagement, if, if that's the right term, by saying that the lawyers on both sides are entitled to the consultants and entitled to find out what is actually going on in the mind of the jurors or what are their personal biases that they bring to the jury box. Well, I think that's right. In fact, I would argue when there's some people who would say, you know what, it's, it's unethical to, uh, to do the kind of work that jury consultants do. We should, you know, shouldn't we just let, let things happen as they happen? My answer to that, and by the way, another one of my hats is I'm a disciplinary commissioner in the state of Illinois for, for lawyers, so I wear an ethics hat. I'm concerned about ethics. And my response to that is to say, look, to me, a lawyer has to do everything in his or her power to bring the resources available to assist and put on the very best case for their client as they can, whether that client is the state in the case of a prosecutor, whether it's a defendant in the case of a criminal defendant or a civil defendant, whether it's a plaintiff in a civil case. The lawyer has the obligation to, to put on the best case they can and to understand things. And lawyers' training is the law. Lawyers' training is not people. 
I mean, that's not their their gig. And so, not that they don't have you know good skill, good uh, communication skills, but what I'm saying is the ability to understand what kind of people will be most open to listening to your side of the case. What kind of people would not listen to your side? I mentioned the priest abuse cases before. If you're down in the Texas area where you have a lot of Southern Baptists, it's very clear from the research Southern Baptists are not open to listening to the Catholic Church defense in any of those cases. But aren't those folks entitled to a defense? And as you say, prosecutors bring a case when they're pretty convinced that somebody has done the crime. But if you go into a trial saying, look, folks, we wouldn't do this if he wasn't guilty, what are you having a, what are you having a trial for? You're having a trial because under our system, we force the state, if we're going to remove somebody's freedom from them, we force the state to prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what's beautiful about our system with mistakes and all. Paul, let's change the topic here a little bit. Why are lawyers given a bad rap? <laughs> Um, you know, you're right. Lawyer jokes, and, and uh, on a scale of public trust, lawyers rank just below used car salesmen. Um, go figure that one out. Uh, my sense of that is a couple of things, Barry. Number one, I think people are intimidated by lawyers. I think there is a, a sense that that lawyers... Lawyers know a lot. Lawyers know more than the average person about the law, and I think that scares people. I always like to point people to... The, to the famous Shakespeare quote, you know, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers from Henry the, Henry the whoever, fifth or whatever number it was. Um, but you know what's interesting? Shakespeare's quote, which I even have on a mug, first thing we've got to do, let's kill all the lawyers. What Shakespeare really said, not in Shakespeareese, but what he really said was, if you want chaos in society, if you want to tear society apart, then the first thing you have to do is kill all the lawyers. You see, Shakespeare wasn't attacking lawyers. He was supporting them. Yet in your book, Paul Lisnick, you say that many people who have worked with a lawyer think very highly of their lawyer, and I find that in my experience. Well, actually, and you're right. The point I make in The Hidden Jury is that lawyers are disparaged, lawyers aren't popular people, but what the surveys that, that you know, attack lawyers don't say is people like and respect their own lawyer, and that's right. Just as you've said, you know, people say, oh, I, I, would, I, I can't stand lawyers. But when you need one, it's amazing how people say, mine is the best. It just goes to show how, how just, you know, public opinion whenever impacts people. In your observation of the American jury system in your studies and the historical review that you have done, what changes would you suggest be made to make it more fair, more just, and more equal? Boy, what a deep question, and, and it's so tough. And here's, here's the way I think I need to answer that. There's a lot of people who have written on that topic. Uh, a lot of authors uh, and scholars have written about what we need to do. What you find, though, is that every modification suggested to the legal system creates other problems in the legal system. So one of the problems in the legal system, for example, is jury instructions. Before jurors go off to do their thing, they're given a set of legal instructions that they have to follow to make their decision. What's the problem? Jurors don't understand jury instructions. They're a mess. So what have we tried to do? Rewrite them. Make them more clear. Make them more intelligible. Then what happens? The jury instructions become ambiguous, and they're more difficult to follow. What else do we learn? We learn from research that 75% of the jurors report that they make their decisions based on gut instinct and not the law. The point is, however it is you try and fix the system, Barry, it, it, it really sort of produces more problems, more concerns, other issues. Everything has a, an impact and a counter-impact. I think the answer is to recognize that the system makes mistakes, and what we need to do, probably in a review 
kind of situation is to be able to look at individual cases and fix them where something's gone wrong. Uh, you know, for many years, I, I certainly was a supporter of the death penalty. And um, I just, you know, it, 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 it's part of, I suppose, being human and the notion of revenge and all that kind of thing. One of the reasons that I find it difficult now to support the death penalty, and I write a little about this in The Hidden Jury, is because if you make a mistake and you put somebody to death and you learn later, whoops, we were wrong, there's no reversing that. In Illinois, where I live, just in the last couple of years, uh, our former governor, who's now been indicted, uh, but, but our former governor um, actually released and commuted everybody's sentence on death row. Thirteen or so of those people were found to have been innocent and had been serving many, many, many years on death row for something they never did. My thought is, don't do what's irreversible. At least give yourself the chance to undo something when a mistake's been made. Paul Lisnick, what drew you to do this kind of work? I was uh, in law school, Barry, and, and also working on my doctorate in communication. I didn't even know this field existed. And I read an article about this world of jury consulting. And for me, it combined it all. There was the law that I was fascinated by, communication, which just just really compels me in so many different ways, because I think communication is the heart of everything. I, I, I've written actually lots of different books and done tapes and things, but, and they're all focused on communication skills. I think that's the heart of, of what people need to do well uh, to interact with others and to get along with others. And it, for me, it was the field that combined both of those areas of interest. What changes have you seen in the jury consultancy work in the 10 years since the O.J. Simpson case? There's been so much more focus placed on the work of jury consultants, for one thing. I mean, the O.J. case put jury consultants on the map. Uh, my office worked in that case and worked, picked the juries for, for Simpson uh, and worked with Johnny Cochran. I opted to stay out of the case and actually did uh, on-air analysis with NBC during that case. That case made all the difference in the world to the field. Lawyers who previously had heard of the field or heard of jury consultants, um, you know, but never wanted to use them, after watching the work that they did and, and came to realize how important that work was, we read every day about, you know, we don't read in all these cases about what, what's going on behind the scenes, uh, which is why I write about it in The Hidden Jury, to kind of you know, pull back the curtain on that kind of work. But in the OJ case, we actually heard about some of the focus groups, where we bring in mock jurors, and we, we test our case out. We basically say, do you buy this, folks? Does this one work? Um, so many lawyers who never would have used a jury consultant before now end up saying, I'd never try a case without one, without doing a focus group, because they live with these cases for years. The opportunity of being able to test their theory out in front of mock jurors is critical. Do you think that that ability to use focus groups should be made available to the public defenders' offices throughout the country, uh, public defenders who represent people who cannot afford an attorney? They do, and I work with public defenders. So there's the good news. Uh, I don't know if that's true in every state, but I will tell you that in many states, and I work in different states, there are now funds in capital cases, uh, funds made available in capital cases especially, where, where we're dealing with the death penalty. There are now funds to hire jury consultants and have them do critical work. That, that, that is such an important change that's happened over the last period of years. Paul M. Lisnick, author of The Hidden Jury and Other Secret Tactics Lawyers Use to Win. I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Most recently, I'm into the political process, and I've recently read Maureen Dowd's book uh, on uh, Bush World or whatever it's called, something like that. I really like, uh, she's a New York Times columnist. Uh, I love her turn of phrase. I love her humor. I love uh, her positioning. That's, that's the most recent thing I've read. Paul M. Lisnick, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious.
Thank you, Barry. Paul Lisnick is the author of The Hidden Jury and Other Tactics Lawyers Use to Win. The book he recommends is Bush World, Enter at Your Own Risk by Maureen Dowd. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.